Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 106, where we will be discussing Brandon Sanderson's Oathstormer. Stop it. Promise Keeper. No. Oathbringer. Yay. Chapters 29 through 35, including the interludes. On our next book club, we'll be covering chapters 36 through 42. It's a nice round 69 pages for you, so hopefully it will tide you over. Nice. Our spoiler policy is that Liz has read these books and everything in the Cosmere, two or three times, in fact. I have not read anything past chapter 35 of Oathbringer, therefore we will not spoil anything past chapter 35 of Oathbringer. Side note. Side note. We are here recording in the new No Pants Podcast Network studio space, our first official recording in our new studio. It's pretty exciting. We're going to find out just how echoey it is uh, in post. Fingers crossed over here. So it's been a little while since we've talked about this book. How did it feel to jump back in? Well, I um, I read slowly enough that it just kind of feels... <laughs> <just kinda laughs> It's normal for me. Okay. It's fine. This section was a little different from ones we've covered in the past because usually we would only cover up to the end of a part. However, we're doing a bit bigger chunks this time. Also, we are on the third thousand page book in a row. So trying to this keep is just it moving. What we're we're yeah. trying to keep it moving a little bit. A little bit. Do you think that impacted your experience of reading this section? I don't think so. I mean, the ending of this part was was good, but it wasn't like some monumental thing with it, you know, that where it felt awkward to then continue. We're still relatively, shockingly, we're still relatively early in this book. Right. So the, the climax of part one is less, you know, that's then are going to be the climaxes of future parts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into these chapters. Let's do it. Chapter 29 is called No Backing Down. Vale is hunting the murder beast. She and a few of her men witness its recreation of a hanging that occurred the night before. She chases the thing into the tunnels, switching from Vale to Shallan to Radiant and back. The chase ends at an ominous black pit where Shallan wisely waits for backup. The tunnel leads them to one of the unmade, Resh Shafir, the Midnight Mother. Now, that's a badass mic- nickname. That's a badass nickname. I don't know what I need to do to get a nickname like that. <laughs> the Midnight Mother. Here she is, Renarin whispered. One of the unmade, Res Shafir, the Midnight Mother. Isn't it good, Norwegian Wood? The unmade, the unworn, the unshaved. She still lives at home at the age of 32. Her bed. It is unmade. <laughs> so the first thing that I noted in this chapter is how they're going through the market and Shalon notes how the market is bustling with booze and all this other good stuff that was mm-hmm. brought by Taravangian. 
And it's so interesting, all of these offhanded remarks about Tara Vangian that now, because we've seen behind the curtain, we can see how he is actually really craftily positioning himself to take over. Yeah. So he comes mm-hmm. in and already he's increased his popularity by bringing all this good stuff into the marketplace. Yeah, he is the he's the Wu-Tang clan of Alucard. <laughs> nice. <laughs> my uh, my notes in the marketplace are one of the uh one of the soldiers who is hitting on Vale. He says, "But tell me, sweetness, don't you want to stay here with us a little longer?" <laughs> She says, most men who have made a pass at me end up missing a finger or two. I'd still have plenty left to satisfy you, I promise. Oh, Brandor. Plus, I'd finally be able to count to eight. (laughs) The other thing I noticed, uh, you discussed her split personalities. Even the personalities themselves are starting to refer to themselves in the third person. Mm Mm-hmm. Vale liked watching people. She spoke from Vale's point of view. That she shared with Shalon. That and pink hot pants. But it's just interesting that she even refers to her own personalities when she's in the personality in the third person. Just f- this further abstraction. Yes, she. these personalities are becoming more distinct and she's having a harder time identifying herself as any one of them. Now, and we talk a lot about... Shalon and does she have dissociative identity disorder and people have asked Brandon that and he has said you know no maybe he drew from that but someone with true dissociative identity disorder doesn't know what her other personalities are doing mm-hmm. um, but Shalon's three personalities it's interesting they how they reflect on each other because this is the result of supernatural powers working on someone with trauma and Imagine if someone with trauma has some kind of supernatural power and w- could subconsciously use that power to cope with their trauma. Um, this is what that looks like. And I just think it's so interesting. And it led to me making this this sweet Venn diagram. What? That I'm holding up for you right now. It's the first time I've seen that. Of Shalon, Radiant, and Vale, the Venn diagram of of you know their traits and characteristics. Wow. So I will try to take a picture of it and put it up on the Facebook page for everyone to enjoy. But any chapter that let, that uh, gives me an excuse to make a Venn diagram is a good one in my book. You gotta book. do it. You gotta take that opportunity. Plus, Vale walking around looking like Carmen San Diego. Right. <laughs> so true. Hat, long white coat. Where is she now? Where is she now? We don't know. Threatening to cut dude's fingers off, apparently. (laughs) Okay, so what do we think of the murder monster? I thought it was interesting that, you know, she is so certain that she knows what's going to happen because this guy got into a bar fight and killed a guy. So she's so certain that the murder monster is going to come back and recreate that murder. But what she fails to think about is that they hung that guy. Mm -hmm. And so looking one direction the murder actually happens somewhere else where mm-hmm. someone gets hung. So I thought that was that was very interesting. And then that's when they run into the uh, the murder monster who is better known as the Midnight Mother. And she's hella creepy. That's creepy. It's a creepy scene. I thought it was really interesting how, so Shalon slash Vale slash whoever chases this really creepy monster down into a bottomless black pit. Thankfully, she doesn't go charging after 
like many fantasy heroines would, but she wisely sends Pattern to get Adolin and his men to back her up. But she does, even with all this drama and stuff, she manages to fix it so that Adolin is not going to see her in Vale's clothing. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was interesting how committed she is to keeping this secret, e- even from people that would probably understand and support her. Well, it's also wise strategically and tactically. It does you no good to have another personality and then let everybody know. Right, but but even from the person who is closest to her in the tower, she's not even willing to let him know. You know Adolin got a big mouth? He, poor dumb Adolin. Poor dumb Adolin. <laughs> Listen, he's, he's the son, you know, the nephew of the ex-king, the son of the king of Eurythiru, dashing good looks. I don't feel bad for him. <laughs> I love the line when Adolin comes down and he says, your spren said that he didn't want you to do something stupid without letting him watch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Exhibit Z as to why pattern is the best right. of the spren. So they get down there, you know, the soldiers are there. They're going to be in formation you know, against the Midnight Mother, and they're like, don't get boxed in. You'll never live to tell the tale. Light cannot escape it. It is the Midnight Mother. I tried for a box joke. It didn't work. Just keep going. Oh, Oh, that was a reach, babe. I'm sorry. (laughs) Listen, she touched it with her shame. (laughs) She did. I thought it was interesting that Renarin and Shallan have felt the Spren's presence, but Dalinar did not. Hmm. Just a little tidbit about how their powers might be similar. I love Renarin's interactions with Bridge Four here, how he's kind of been swept up by this group, this band of misfits, and he certainly wasn't like that when he initially joined. But now they just kind of, they embrace him as one of their own. And uh, says they joke, they joke around with him about kind of being weird mm-hmm. and that, that he's an oddball. But he's found a place among them. And that's very, I, I'd like that part of the story. He's also the narrative uh, barometer of when things are getting creepy and scary. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Ron Arn's always, he's like the shaggy of the group. Scooby. Uh-huh. It was cool watching him have Adolin's back in the fight. Yeah. So they go down. They actually are going to start fighting this thing. And even though he's terrified, he stands back to back with his brother. So that was kind of cool. The Midnight Mother was pretty cool. That's a pretty cool monster. It is. Yeah. But I have to say, I got really sad at the ruined library. That just like when you have you seen like pictures online of libraries that are abandoned or or in a fire or something and they're just no I'm, i don't go onto the internet to torture myself right. like that <laughs> it's the saddest thing ever it's like right under the sarah mclaughlin puppy commercials <laughs> so i also thought it was worthy to note there was all this art in the chamber and shallan goes through some trouble to describe it which because she's shallan of course she's going to do that but she talks about a picture of a solitary figure hovering before a large blue disc, a picture of the Almighty, and a woman in the shape of a tree. So those are the three paintings that are on, three figures that are painted on the wall. And then there's like the 10 types of spren and the 10 orders of Knights Radiant. Okay, so those are honor, 
odium and cultivation. That I think that's a pretty good guess. So the one hovering before the blue disc is odium? That would make sense. So what you're saying is this entire thing is an allegory for flat earthers? <laughs> Fucking out of here, man. <laughs> Chapter 30 is called Mother of Lies. I mean, if the midnight mother is taken, I could be the mother of lies. No, no, you can't. You're right. I can't lie. <laughs> I'm terrible at lying. I'm, I'm sorry. You can be the mother of something else. Right? <laughs> I am the worst at lying. <laughs> <laughs> In this chapter, the battle with the midnight mother continues. Shalon manages to frighten Reshafir into fleeing, leaving behind a pillar covered in precious gemstones. That's pretty much it. Yeah, this is the, the, you know, this is the fight. The last chapter was up until Reshafir was cornered, and now we have the actual fight scene, the defeat of Reshafir, or at least for now, the defeat. It opens with, chapter opens with, Shallan was open to this thing, laid bare, her skin split, her soul gaping wide. It could get in. Gross. That's pretty gross. It's like a Gia fanfic. <laughs> Blue might be the warmest color, but Midnight Mother is down to party. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> Reshafir, ordered to sow chaos, spawning horrors to confuse and destroy men, like Ray and Graf in my so-called life. So I went back to the Way of King epigraphs where they talked about Reshafir. Mm. And I copied it down. So they say, they talk about Reshafir, the Midnight Mother, giving birth to abominations with her essence so dark, so terrible, so consuming. So this is another one of those, you know, 1,500 pages ago, This there was an epigraph describing this thing that you're like, I don't even know what that is. Whatever. Whatever. And here it is. I, I just always got to point that out because I think it's so cool how these threads all get tied together. Well, it's... It's also one of the two main monsters that we see in the Desolation. So in the opening prologue of Way of Kings, we get the Aeroclasts or whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, the giant stone monsters. Right. And then in Dalinar's flashback, we have the sort of oil-colored smoke monster things. like They're like the smoky dogs. The Midnight Essence. Yeah, yeah. They were referred to. It's like the worst Vidal Sassoon shampoo you've ever. (laughs) That sounds like a failed men's beauty product. Right? Midnight Essence. By Calvin Klein. (laughs) The, um, so two of the, two of those, you know, we are, so this is one of the two main monsters we see. And now the question is with her sort of, you know, running away from Shallan, is that going to slow down the desolation? Is this a, a significant win for for the people on Roshar? I mean, we didn't get the sense that she was destroyed, just that she was fleeing. But does it have some sort of strategic advantage, or does it just delay her? Does just she just regroup somewhere else? Uh, we don't know, but it, it's interesting to think about. It might have greater implications two, three, four, or five books from now. Yeah, exactly. And that's an interesting question because what we know of the unmade is that they are tools and soldiers of odium, but that the Midnight Mother is not entirely aware. 
she's not a entirely sentient being and that she's just been kind of chilling in this tower with this growing curiosity about humans. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much of a blow that would be to Odium, but it's definitely a bonus for Team Dalinar that this thing is not chilling in the tower anymore. And several times it's also mentioned that the feeling of kind of doom and yuckiness that's been mm-hmm. hanging over the place is gone. Like that was this being that Shalon was sensing. Yeah. So that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. So I initially, you know, this unmade Reshafir comes up and I'm like, oh, here's another thing that just comes from out of nowhere that Brandon Sanderson just throws up. You know, with no sort of bad, how am I supposed to know anything about the unmade? There's mm-hmm. been no breadcrumbs dropped mm-hmm. about Reshafir, the unmade, mm-hmm. until I looked it up. And mm-hmm. you have the one that you referenced, and I, I may double dip on here, but but these are the things that I found on mm-hmm. the unmade that I thought were interesting. So going back to Words of Radiance in Interlude 4, mm-hmm. we have this quote, but the alternative dabbling into things we shouldn't, things that might bring the eyes of the unmade upon us. Mm-hmm. Mother, Esh and I said to supplication, why did we leave the dark home? And then later, Esh and I's mother says, long are the days since we knew the dark home, mother sang softly to one of the rhythms of remembrance. The last legion, that was our name then, warriors who had been set to fight in the farthest plains. This place had once been a nation and was now rubble. Dead was the freedom of most people. The forms, unknown, were forced upon us. Forms of power, yes, but also forms of obedience. The gods commanded, and we did obey, always, always. Except for that day, Esh and I said, along with her mother in rhythm. The day of the storm when the last legion fled, mother continued in song. Difficult was the path chosen. Warriors touched by the gods. Our only choice was to seek dullness of mind, a crippling that brought freedom. Daring was the challenge made, mother sang. When the last legion abandoned thought and power in exchange for freedom, they risked forgetting all, and so songs they composed, a hundred stories to tell, to remember. I tell them to you, and you will tell them to your children until the forms are again discovered. From there, Mother launched into one of the early songs about how people would make their home in the ruins of an abandoned kingdom, how they would spread out, act as simple tribes and refugees. It was their plan to remain hidden, or at least ignored." I mean, that right there tells you so much mm-hmm. about what's going on with the listeners. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though, so so that's not really even so much about the unmade, although it touches on it, but I thought it was interesting. Then there's the snapter for chapter 25, smoke form for hiding and slipping between men, a form of power like human surges, bring it round again. Though crafted of gods, it was by unmade hand, mm. leaves its force to be one of foe or friend from the listener's song of histories. And then mm. we have a similar one in, in chapter Snapter for chapter 31. Smoke form for hiding and slipping between men, a form of power like surges of spren. Mm. Do we dare wear this form again? It's spies, crafted of God, this form we fear. By unmade touch, it's cursed to bear. Formed from shadow, its death is near. It lies. Interesting. Good catch. Oh, I've, I'm not even done yet. Oh, I got more coming. to go. Then we have the snapter in chapter 81. The unmade are a deviation, a Mm -hmm. flare, a conundrum that may not be worth your time. You cannot help but think of them. They are fascinating. Many are mindless, like the spread of human emotions, only much more nasty. I do believe a few can think, however, 
This is from the diagram. Right. Then in chapter 45, not a snapter, we have the scene where Shalon and Adolin are, are looking at the menagerie and they find the parrot. Mm-hmm. Chickens for eating are stupid. This one is smart, almost as smart as a man. It can speak. Listen. Jack, son of none, say your name. Jack, son of none, the creature said. Shalon jumped back. The word was mangled by the creature's inhuman voice, but it was recognizable. A void bringer, she has safe hand to her chest. An animal that speaks. You bring the eyes of the unmade upon us. Mm-hmm. The merchant laughed. These things live all over Shinovar, young lady. If their speech drew the unmade, the entire country would be cursed. Good catch. I didn't remember that either. I'm not done yet. Oh, keep coming. <laughs> so then we have Way of Kings snapped her in chapter 45. And we have another one, another unmade. Yelignar, called Blightwind, was one that could speak like a man, though often his voice was accompanied by the wails of those he consumed. The unmade were obviously fabrications of folklore. Curiously, most were not considered individuals, but instead personifications of kinds of destruction. Mm. So my allegation that this came from nowhere, completely false. Yep, untrue. And I just love how the layers of this story continue to build. And you think there, you know, there's not going to be anywhere else it could go. And yet now there's this whole other kind of bad guy that we've got going on Mm -hmm. that, like you said, seems like it comes out of nowhere, but really the groundwork has been laid for it the whole time. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. Chapter 31 is called Demands of the Storm. Kaladin and his band reach the city of Revelar, where the escaped Parshmen have been gathering. There, for the first time, we see a Parshendi in storm form, a red-eyed being the other Parshmen refers to as the Fused. Kaladin decides it's time to dip on out of there. Unfortunately, the Fused can fly, and they chase him into a high storm. He's worried for a minute, but the Fused are obviously noobs, and Kaladin can apparently hold back high storm winds now, so he's able to escape to Urethiru. I had some, like, issues with Kaladin in this chapter. But let's start with, like, him actually arriving. And I thought it was cute how he was kind of proud of his Parshmen. Because the other ones were rolling up. They were all a hot mess. (laughs) And his Parshmen are, like, kind of together. So, And and he's really torn. And I think this is one of the most important themes of this book, um, which is, uh, is there a, a right side or a wrong side to conflict? Mm-hmm. And in yeah. most conflicts, both sides see themselves in the right. And Kaladin is starting to see the side of the Parshman. And especially as he's gotten to know Sa and the other um, Parshendi that he's traveling with. And um, he, he really doesn't want to be at war with them. But he doesn't really see any other outcome. He says uh, he doesn't see the the light eyes and the Alethi society just letting them go. And he doesn't see how they could... They're not just going to agree to go back into slavery. So it's... It's just an impossible situation. Well, you know, that was, of course, what I noted sort of about this chapter as as well. My first note is actually that they are preparing for war. Mm -hmm. So all this time, you know, we've had these stories of the listeners sort of running and they might take food, but they're not attacking people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you think, oh, well, maybe it's, you know, this is not war they're after. They're just trying to get away. Right. And I still think that that's true. I don't think that the listeners want to wage a war against uh, the Rosharns. I just think they want to get away. Um, but as it turns out, there are these sort of st- 
dorm form listeners that mm-hmm. are out there. And then there are these uh, spren from Odium, and they're the ones sort of leading the Parshendi. Mm-hmm. So right now, the only reason why they haven't been attacking is because it would be you know, tactically unwise to do so. So mm-hmm. they're just getting to where they can sort of form a mass and start to form an army. Uh, and these uh, spren you know, are talking about, we know how to form armies, we know how to create supply lines, you know. So it's 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 not at all what I've been thinking to this point. Mm-hmm. It's 100% what everybody else has sort of imagined as the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. That is what, in fact, is going on. Yeah. Um, except, of course, as you said, we can sort of see it from their side. It's sort of strange, you know, in a land that is so massive that has so much land that nobody even lives in, and there are relatively so few Parshmen that this seems like an impossible solution, Mm -hmm. that they couldn't settle these people somewhere. It's not because they look different. It's because there's a lot of weird-looking SOBs on Roshar. Mm -hmm. So it's not because, like, the Parshendi look different than them. But yet they can't seem to, you know, it seems inevitable despite all of that. Well, you know, they've had this, their entire economy is based on this slave labor. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm, yeah. You know? And not to mention, you know, this is a race that has, you know, been enslaved for what, maybe thousands of years? Mm -hmm. Despite whatever the reason for it may have been and whatever that history may have been. Uh, you know, these people have been treated as slave for thousands of years, and they're not just going to forget that and move mm-hmm. on. So I'm not, I don't want to minimize it and make it seem like it's a simple thing. Right. Um, but it's, it's less that that I'm complaining, not even complaining about, but highlighting. It's less that than it is that there are, there are other possibilities. They just don't see them as possibilities. Absolutely. And isn't that probably true of most conflict? Absolutely. Yeah. So we found out that the yellow spren is named Yixley, which I love that name. I don't know why. It's just fun to say. That's a cool name. Yixley speaks up for Kaladin, and he's kind of allowed to come in as a prisoner. Mm-hmm. But then he gets a, uh, catches a glimpse of these fused, who are obviously a different kind of Parshendi, and they're in charge. And he's like, uh, you know what? I, I think, I think it's, time it's time to, time to go. go. Yeah. So this part is frustrating for me because he's like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. But then he just kind of chills out. Like, he shoots up in the air, and he's like, ah. Yeah, yeah. And then he just kind of floats. Like, he doesn't actually leave. No. He just kind of, like, floats around. And, he has and to then stick he's around like, long enough for there to be conflict. It, yeah, exactly. So that part was a little frustrating for me, but it was also kind of a way to get to see him explore new power. So he's, he's floating around, and he sees that the high storm is coming, and... He sees that there's some human captives that aren't going to be taken to safety in time. Mm-hmm. So he goes down. He doesn't free them, but he's like convinces their captors to get them to safety and uh, discovers he has some kind of wind bending, air bending powers. And it seems like that's the kind of the whole point of this, this sort of awkward exchange. Yeah. is like, whoa, I didn't know I could do that. And, mm-hmm. and Syl's like, whoa, I didn't know you can do that. But um, it does give us the scene of Syl fighting off the glory spren. So he he attracts a couple of glory spren. Yeah, and yeah. Syl's like, get back, bitches! Yes, my man. <laughs> One of the things that's unfortunate about this whole thing to me 
is uh, these, you know, Parshendi walking around and like they don't have a brain in their heads. Now, I, we understand that in the story, there's a good reason for that. They took on dull form. It was a way for them to sort right. of stay out of the way of, or out of the, not raise the attention of Odium so that they could be recaptured. So there's a very valid reason for it. But the way it sort of plays out is that, uh, you know, here comes Kaladin being like, I'm the only one who has any common sense or knows mm -hmm. how to do anything, you know? And when he gets, you know, when he gets to this collection of them, they're all standing around mm -hmm. and they're literally too stupid to come in from the rain. Like, <laughs> you know, and it just doesn't really have a good look about it. Mm-hmm. There is an ostensibly logical explanation, especially, and I think it also highlights a little bit how thrown the entire world is that the high storm pattern has changed. Mm -hmm. yeah. The high storms have always been there, and people and listeners alike have gotten very used to it being a certain way and being able to predict them. And now all of a sudden it's all jacked up. So that's going to cause, create additional chaos. Mm -hmm. The other thing I thought was interesting is there's a conversation that Syl and Kaladin have about sort of the ethics and what's right and what's wrong. And he says, and why was it worse for me to let Elicar be killed for his injustices than it was for me to actively kill Parchment on the Shattered Plains? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I've been saying the whole time. Uh -huh. like, you know, and I mean, I think Brandon Sanderson does a good job of like, clearly spelling out through words of radiance and way of kings that like they go out they you know it's supposed to be about what's right and what's honorable but they leave wave after wave mm -hmm. of dead parshendi in their wake mm -hmm. and it's like how is this honorable you mm -hmm. know and i'm just glad it's being addressed and it's an unusual theme in epic fantasy traditional epic fantasy is usually very much about good versus evil um, good guys versus bad guys, dark versus light. And uh, it, it's, it's, modern fantasy explores that a little bit more, but this idea that there's not really a bad guy and good and bad is more about perception. But it is nicely done here. Chapter 32 is called Company. Shallan and Polona discuss the unmade. It gives them both a major Wiggins to realize that these ancient evil creatures have always been out there, impacting humanity in ways that they've learned to take for granted. In the midst of all of this, Yasna returns. So that's sort of the big huzzah at the, ben at the end of part one here, is the news that Yasna has come back to Yurithiru. We knew she was alive, so... Yeah, it's sort of a... It's less than earth-shattering. Right. Um, not that we expect the end of part one to be some huge, massive reveal. So mm -hmm. it's not it's not disappointing, but it's also not particularly shocking in any way. Right. You know? So I do think that Shalon and Polona's conversation about the unmade is interesting, especially in light of everything that you've just kind of laid out that's been put out there in the last books, that these creatures have been out there all of this time, mm -hmm. Shallan says they'll just be normal to us the way things have always been. So it just is very curious to think about what are what are the other ones been up to? What have they been out there causing that that everyone has just always taken for granted? Yeah, I, I always I thought Polona's questions in and of themselves were sort of 
interesting and weird. And I don't know, maybe it's just that I'm, maybe I'm just being suspicious or looking for things that aren't there. But the question she would, you know, the questions were like, what was it like? Oh, to think it was here all this time, hiding down there. On one hand, they're the sort of things that anybody would ask. But on the other hand, it's a novel. So mm-hmm. every word is put there for a deliberate person. Plus, Polona's sort of always been this kind of mystery to us. So I, I question whether or not that actually means anything. Is it just that they're together? Polona's the one who happens to be with her. And mm-hmm. this is the questions anybody would ask. Or mm-hmm. or is it that Polona is sort of pumping Shalon for information? Mm-hmm. I don't know. A couple of quotes from that area. Uh, Polona says, what was it like? How to answer that, thought Shalon. She touched Midnight Mother. People sang songs about Reshafir and poetry and epics, describing her as a dark, beautiful figure. Paintings depicted her as a black-clad woman with red eyes and a sultry gaze. It wasn't like the stories, Shalon whispered. It was slightly tangy. Slightly tangy? Is that really what it says? No, <laughs> I added the last part. Oh, okay. Had this creature I, in distant... Really, is it bad that I actually thought... <laughs> Had this creature in distant, distant time beyond memory once been human, once posited by the protagonist, that makes it confirmed. <laughs> mm. Very interesting. Yes, probably true. <laughs> so the return of Yasna also is kind of a character beat for Shalon, especially as she gets the news right as she's having this thought about how between her three personalities, she can pretty much handle anything that comes at yeah. her. <laughs> and then it's like... Except for this bitch. Womp, womp, womp. Yasna's back, bitches. That's right. She's going to let you know it, too. As we will find out. As we'll find out. I don't want to spoil anything. But now let's talk about Pooley. Let's let's do it. Oh, Pooley. Pooley the lighthouse keeper. Pooley the lighthouse keeper is secretly excited about the arrival of the Everstorm. His father always told him that one day, the men from the hidden island of the Origin would come with light in their pockets to reclaim Natanatan, and he's kept the lighthouse burning bright in anticipation of the change and the long night that will accompany them. It's kind of dark, Pooley. You know, it's um, it's the patriarchy at its worst. <laughs> How so? I mean, the men... With light in their pockets. Ah. Need I say more? <laughs> so here's the poem that Pooley, you know, was, was passed down from his ancestors, mm-hmm. I guess. Men from the origin come with destruction, come to reclaim Natanatan with light in their pockets. I'm sure that'll make sense to us at some point. You're looking at me very skeptically. Well, I mean, my first thought when reading it, like my first note that I have written down is, uh, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's literally what I wrote. Like, um, this, you know, the hidden island of the origin. So we knew about this origin. We had even heard stories about an island somewhere in the past, but they were like far off to the west side, I thought. Of uh, Roshar, not, not and not to, or the origin is to the east 
of Roshar. So who knows what that means, but um, but we certainly don't have any reference to like another land where there's a distinct and separate people mm-hmm. or that the radiance somehow were just came from outside of mm-hmm. Roshar. So that's a little bit weird, but the whole um, light in their pockets thing, I mean, people have pockets full of stormlight all the time. So that doesn't seem unusual. It certainly seems to make you think of the radiance though. It does. It does. Yeah. It's what leads you to think that's what it is. Uh, also the fact that they come with the rising of the destruction. So it seems like that's what it's about. The The interesting and weird thing is this secret island of not, you know, not a non, Natanaton, excuse me. Uh, and that they come from there. Like that's the well, part that's weird. Natanaton is where they are. That's where he is. He's in the country of Natan, which used to be Natanaton. Oh, to reclaim. Okay, sorry. So they're coming All from right. the origin to reclaim it. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, from the hidden island of the origin. Mm-hmm. What what does that mean? That's that's the weird the part that's weird. I dated a guy from the hidden island of the origin once. Did you? Yeah. How did he tip? Very well, surprisingly. His mom hated me though. No, oh, yeah. What was that? I got nothing. Okay. <laughs> He was good at the tip, but it was just the tip. That's all it, it was. It was just the tip. It was the only thing he was good at. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about Alista. Alista is an ardent in the peaceful monastery of Jokasha. Everyone there is a Twitter trying to figure out the new storm, but Alyssa just wants to be left in peace to read romance novels. One of her fellow ardents offers her the sequel to her favorite, Hava Ripper, in exchange for her helping <laughs> translate a particularly tricky section of the dawn chant. I love this snap, this uh, interlude. Uh, it's a good little bit of humor injected. Yeah. Yeah. The, Oh, she loved him and he loved her. And then why would she choose him? And, you know, all about the fashion and the fun and their sick dope beats. Well, and just that every other ardent we've met is like a passionate Uber nerd you know, super scholar, right? Yeah. And so she's, and um, Alista, it opens on her and she's kind of going through and she's going to try and find a place to read. And like, she just keeps getting distracted. And so you think it's going to be some like, like she's, you know, doing some kind of nerdy research. And when she finally finds a quiet space, she opens her book and it's this like, it's this romance it's this novel. trashy romance novel. And I'm like, hell yeah, Alista. Like if I could find a job where all I had... <laughs> Just had to sit around and read novels all day. Like you would take it, of course you would. In a second. So every sort of chapter we've had about the Arden so far, so far, has read like the Big Bang Theory. Okay. That's it. That's just my observation. Oh, okay. All the yeah. chapters are like the Big Bang Theory. They just are. They're all making fun of each other. Right. It's right. all about I do. You know. Yeah, they're kind of the super nerds yeah. of the of Roshar. Interlude 3 is called Rhythm of the Lost. We check in with Venli, who's kicking it in storm form. We meet Ulim, the spren that she has been meeting in secret since the beginning of her search for the forms of power. He's a right prick, and despite everything that's happened, it's hard not to feel sympathy for Venli as she is led to her sister's body and callously ordered to strip the plate and blade from it. Venli worries about what she will be capable of without Eshonai's voice of reason and what her new masters, her ancestors, have in store. 
Yeah, this was interesting. So uh, much like the part that I read earlier about Esh and I and her mother in the conversation, you know, this, this I think is something we're going to look back on at some point and be like, oh, there were a lot of hints here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, in particular, this is where I referenced earlier that Ulam the Spren talks about, you know, do you know how to lead armies? Do you know how to keep supply lines? Do you know how to, Uh you know, because this Spren has apparently been around through all these desolations in the past, or at least retained the knowledge of it somehow. Um, And yeah, he's a right prick. But I, I feel like in this book, like, one of the things that has not been satisfying, and I hope, I'm holding off and I'm not trying to be overly critical here uh, because I hope it pays off or things change, but just the chapters with the listeners have just, they just really haven't been satisfying. Like, mm-hmm. these people just get the shaft. Like, mm-hmm. And it's not even that, uh, but I don't know. It just, I keep waiting for something to happen with them that I can, like, you know, sink my teeth into and be happy about. I don't know. It just doesn't, just hasn't happened yet. What do you think about it that you don't find satisfying? I don't know. I just, maybe I just can't get into the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly, I mean, I wasn't really all that jazzed up about Esh and I. Mm-hmm. But Esh and I was something you could, you could kind of be like, I could see getting to like this mm-hmm. character. And like, Venley was just. She's a bee. She's, yeah, she's, you know, terrible. And now Esh and I's gone, and now we're supposed to get behind Venley. Mm-hmm. And I, for all the cool things that Brandon Sanderson does, I haven't seen him pull off a Jamie Lannister, mm-hmm. you know, a character you just absolutely hate and then come to love. He's, you know, it's only been 2,500 pages, so mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, it's just... It's well, just, and this is the nah. first kind of peak we've had into Venley's headspace. True, true. And, and yeah, she is a very unlikable character at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what her arc is, though. And and I think that we're going to get more and more of the listeners' points of view as the series progresses. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that, that changes and your perception of them changes. The other thing in here that I thought was interesting is Ulam says, or I'm sorry, Demet says, uh, what did the dead have to do with this? Everything, Ulam replied. Mm-hmm seeing as they're the ones that are in charge. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm speculating and I'm I'm ducking a little ahead into my, really kind of my, one of my only predictions for this chapter, but, or this section, but it's here that we talk, we find out like that, you know, the dead are in charge, the ancestors of mm-hmm. the listeners are in charge. And one of the things I've been saying for a long time is that I I, I don't think... The fact that when you kill somebody with a shard blade and their eyes turn to smoke and escape into the sky mm-hmm. is just a a manifestation of something physical that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's a reason for that. And then we have in earlier chapters these, you know, the midnight essence, these monsters made of smoke. There's, I don't know that these two things are connected, but there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I still think that when you kill somebody with a shard blade, there's some cost to it, mm-hmm. not in the, not in Roshar, but some spiritual cost to it in a greater way. And maybe everybody that you're killing with a shard blade is somebody you're not sending to the Tranquilin Halls, but you're sending, you know, over to Odium side to eventually, you know, be the chess masters you're going to have to fight against in the Desolation. Nice. That is some good tinfoil you got going on there. I'm, I'm chewing it up. 
I really like in this part, this idea of the new rhythms. And for me, I... They're the rhythms of the night. The rhythms of the night. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, this, I really like the idea of the Parshendi rhythms. And for me, it does... what? Stop dancing. <laughs> what what the ADEM hand talk didn't do for me in King Killer, like I got the concept of it, but it just... And it was okay. I mean, it didn't detract this from a, an amazing story, but I just didn't like really connect to that. I, this does it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that as they're talking, they're also humming and what they're humming is expressing their emotions. It's funny. That's interesting because and not that I was like, oh, Ademic hand gestures are the coolest thing I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Uh, but like I, you know, just recently reread Wise Man's Fear mm-hmm. and like I read all the parts, uh, all the Adamic parts I read in one sitting, mm-hmm. all of the parts in Adam Ray. And, you know, when I kind of closed the book, I was like, man, that's really good. I really <laughs> like, and and here I am with the listeners and I'm just like, I don't get it. I, don't, <laughs> I, I just don't, I want this to be so much better than it is, you know. That's interesting. We had the opposite perspective on it. It's the opposite for me. Yeah. And I especially love how now that this this new form and has been discovered, the rhythms have been changed and replaced. Um, so like the rhythm of appreciation has turned into the rhythm of command. And all of these positive emotions and interactions are being replaced with the negative version of themselves. And I just think, for me, I think that's pretty cool. Or the aggressive version of the yeah. emotion. Like yeah, take the emotion and put it on steroids and send it to the gym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the, the idea that every... Positive emotion has kind of a destructive side as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting to think about what those are. My last note in this chapter is is uh, this quote. What was that small spren that had crept out from beneath oh, Eshenai's corpse? Spren, yeah. It looked like a small ball of white fire. It gave off little rings of light and trailed a streak behind it like a comet. Gone. Shoo. Get. Get you gone. That's it. That's it. That's all I'd say. Do you remember where we saw that before? No. Yes, we have seen that small spren before hovering around Eshenai, bothering Eshenai when she, oh, ever since she bonded yeah. the new spren. So there's that. Interesting. It is interesting. I th- also thought it was interesting how when Ulim is talking about Eshenai, he was saying, we would have lost her anyway she resisted the transformation and she didn't bond properly. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting and it made me wonder if that small spren had something to do with that. It's a good speculation. It's a good guess. So I thought we get a lot more information about Ulim in this interlude than we have before. Well, we had we're, nothing. Right. Yeah. But we knew that... Um, something was behind Venli's searching for these forms of power. And we find out that it was Ulim. He describes himself as the one who escaped the spren of redemption. And it, it seems to indicate that he came to her and instigated her search for the storm form, which led to all of this. Yeah. And that he's been serving the listeners ancestors who they refer to as their gods um, sent by Odium to kind of start this whole process. And we've talked about how the escalation happened between the listeners starting to seek these forms and then the Spren also coming back to form these bonds to make the Radiance again is kind of this like 
this Cold War escalation yeah. going mm-hmm. on. So I thought that was interesting. That he takes the form of rolling lightning, but he also took the form of a human shape with odd eyes. And Venley thinks it's strange that he would take the shape of a human. Yeah, absolutely. It's also strange that he would be called the Spren of Redemption. We sort of think of redemption generally in a positive light, but just Mm -hmm. like we talked about with emotions being taken to one extreme or the other, you know, is this the Spren of Redemption because it's about about revenge or redeeming Mm -hmm. what was lost amongst Mm -hmm. the listeners, including all these forms along with it, uh, the influence of odium. That is interesting. And, and again, is redemption all about perception? I think we we also, we get a really nice kind of character crisis set up for Venley here and some room for an arc, whether or not that will become interesting or not <laughs> remains to be seen. But I, she's she talks about how she has moments when the new rhythms subside and she questions what she's been doing. And she thinks about how, you know... Um, wasn't this all supposed to be for the good of her people? And yet Mm -hmm. it hasn't been very good for her people. No, it has not. Yeah. You know, at the end of the chapter, she gets herself to a place where she thinks, well, the good of my people has always been secondary to me anyway. It was really more about gaining power for myself. So I guess it's a little late to be worrying about that, but she's got that seed of doubt. So we'll see. And she seems to legitimately be grieving for Eshonai. Oh, yeah, yeah. Agreed. And she doesn't like this Ulam character. No, he's a dick. He's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick. So we're going to barrel right into part two. Part two, baby. Part two, we're just going to go for it. Chapter 33 is called A Lecture. Shallan reels from the news that Yasna is alive. Just as she was beginning to feel like a capable adult, her teacher returns and goes right back to treating her like a child. So one thing I noted about Shallan is that each of her personalities seems to emerge as a new responsibility was laid on her. So Vale came out when she found herself needing to infiltrate the ghost bloods mm-hmm. in order to further Yasna's research. And then Radiant came about when Adolin started pressuring her to use her shard blade and to learn how to train. Also, I think it was when she started using the uh, having to run around and open up the oath gates all the time. Right. And and yeah. again, and she had to use the shard blade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the thing I thought that was the most interesting about this chapter is, you know, Shallan sees Yasna and, you know, it can't be a war- it can't be a warm embrace. Right. You know, it can't be. Oh, good friend, where have you been? You know, they can't hug, you know. No, it has to be cold. Yasna mm-hmm. has to just be like, you, girl, get me tea, mm-hmm. you know. And and then Shallan doesn't really like it. Mm-hmm. So neither of them seems to be especially happy about it, at least as the chapter opens. And then at the first opportunity that the blood, the ghost bloods come up, Shallan chooses to lie Mm-hmm. rather than tell her the truth. Mm-hmm. So, not that that's surprising, given Yasna's history, but, or excuse me, given Shallan's history, but just an interesting thing to note that she's not, if you'll pardon the pun, giving up the ghost. <laughs> she's not going to rat out the ghost bloods or not tell him what she knows. Mm-hmm. 
well, it, we've seen Shalon's secretiveness over and over and over. And it, I thought it was interesting that when she was fighting the Midnight Mother, the hardest part was allowing herself to be kind of laid bare and commune with this creature and be have it be aware of who she is as well. And she's only able to do that by kind of lying to herself. She's like, well, I'm just going to tell myself that I, I can do it and then I'll I'll do it. But there's honesty is just seems to be like she seems to be just like constitutionally incapable of yeah. being honest about yeah. who she is. It's such a deeply ingrained coping mechanism. So it's very interesting. It makes me wonder if even the personality of Shalon that we've sort of seen from day one is also a, something split from her original personality. Well, in the chapter where Adolin is coming down to uh, join her and fight against the the Midnight Mother, she goes, oh, I had to become Shalon again. Okay, Shalon, she's, okay, I'm ditzy, I'm naive. Okay, I can become this person. And then part of her thinks, wait, isn't that my actual personality? But it doesn't feel that way anymore. All three yeah. feel like different aspects of her personality that have, have split off. And now she's kind of being forced back into an old role with Yasna coming back. And I think it's cool that, well, not it's, it's not cool, but it's just interesting how Yasna's insecurities come out as this bossiness, this kind of condescending attitude that she has. And we know that this is probably coming from insecurity. And the, at the end of the chapter, she confirms that. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like, I, I was so used to being at the forefront of all of this. I was pushing for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And now I, I come back and it's like, somebody else did it without me. Yeah, I'm so far behind. I'm you know, you guys skipped up to the third book and I'm still haven't finished the first book. Yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I made a note too about how fabrials are made. I thought that was interesting that Shalon that Yasna tells Shalon that fabrials are made by trapping a spren, a certain kind of spren. So a heat fabrial is made by trapping a flame spren. Mm -hmm. Shalon is horrified at this. And Yasna's kind of like, what? It's no different from, you know, hooking a chull up to a wagon. And Yasna's mm -hmm. like, it's totally different. It's like veal versus, you know, free-range steak. It's completely mm -hmm. different. So there's wild steaks running out on the Argentinian plains. Galloping through the plains. Ho ahead. I see wild grasses. <laughs> Let's go run and defeat the wild grasses. <laughs> Dun, 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 free range steak. Oh, you're a dick. A noble people. <laughs> <laughs> Once proud, now ground up on buns. <laughs> I'm going to free range your ass. <laughs> That's why I took my pants off. I, I wanted to be free. <laughs> Behold! <laughs> there he goes. Fucking hey. <laughs> Let him go join his people. Let him be free. So we also get an explanation Tonight as Tonight we eat pork. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Did you miss us, listeners? <laughs> I'm done. We get uh, an explanation about how Yasna survived, which is kind of what we thought. 
Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. And it's right. I, I read it and I was like, well, yeah, kind of kind of silly now to not have been able to put two and two together. Well, at the time that it that the murder happened, we didn't know the extent to which Stormlight could heal mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. Since then, it's been established that Shalana said several times, "I could take a spear through the stomach and I would be totally survive." Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually wrote that quote down. She says when. Yasna explains how she had survived. Shalon says, of course she hadn't, and she probably could have guessed all this. And I was like, me too. I should have guessed all this. And then Shalon says, but for some reason, she didn't want to accept that. She wanted to remain annoyed at Yasna. And I was like, (laughs) me too, girl. Me too. I also want to remain annoyed at her. (laughs) So we find out that Yasna's order is called the Else Callers. And that she can jump to Shadesmar, physically enter Shadesmar, but it's a lot harder to get out. So that's a little tidbit that will probably be helpful later. Well, yeah, I noted that and I thought that was interesting because Yasna's done the same thing. Mm-hmm. But we already kind of know what her powers are. Mm-hmm. So does that mean anything? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, were her... her, were her Experiences in Carboranth where she went in and out of Shadesmar sort of singular and weird, or does it mean that she has some capabilities that a Lightweaver wouldn't ordinarily have? Well, there's a difference between what Shallan did, which is what all Radiants can do, which is to see Shadesmar. Mm-hmm. Shadesmar and the physical realm coexist. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Radiants are tied to Shadesmar, they can see it, but they. When Shallan would see Shadesmar, she wasn't physically going there in I, her body. Oh, I thought she was actually in it a few no, times. No, she. Okay, I don't think. Right. I don't think she actually like physically went there. Mm, okay. Um, right. Yasna can actually go there, but then she can't just pop right back. Um, she can like it's like picture like she's like putting her face under the water mm-hmm. versus yeah, going yeah. all the way in. No, no, I, I got mm-hmm. it. I just I thought she was actually particularly like on the boat and all that. I thought that Mm -hmm. she was like, I thought she was in there. Mm -hmm. But anyway. Chapter 34 is called Resistance. Dalinar and the Stormfather bring Queen Fen into one of his visions. While he's unable to convince her to join him, he makes headway in getting her to believe that the desolation is coming. So Dalinar's plan is pretty clever. He's unable to get any of the world leaders to listen to him because Mm -hmm. he's a horrible murderous tyrant basically and he is yes yes and he spent most of his life conquering and and killing and enslaving people and now all of a sudden he's like but i'm a good guy now i'm a good guy now yeah Um, he's like uh so dalinar's like the guy who secretly puts acid in the punch bowl (laughs) nobody likes that guy (laughs) nobody likes that guy nobody likes dalinar it's true so this is, yeah, they're back in the vision. Same vision Dalinar had before that we've seen before. Uh, but now he's entering it from a different perspective. He's sort of fascinated uh, by seeing it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So he there was this one section where he says he didn't know why the radiant plate glowed while modern shard plate did not. Was the ancient plate living somehow like radiant blades lived? And I'm reading this and it sort of reminds me of like how delicate a balance an author has to strike Mm -hmm. in this sort of thing. Because on one hand, if a character 
doesn't seem to know something that you learned 2,000 pages ago, you're like, yes, dumbass, of course, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but on the other hand, if the characters know things that have never been revealed to you, you feel cheated. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everyone's reading at different times and at different speeds. It just reminds me this is a difficult thing to juggle. Mm-hmm. Because at first I'm reading that and I wanted to be like, yes, dumbass. You know, I wanted to be from that perspective. But, I'm, but then I sort of remember that, uh, you know, we've been reading this book for months and analyzing it at a very, very deep level. A lot of people probably wouldn't read that with the same attitude. Mm-hmm. Well, and we don't really know at this point where shard plate comes from true um or how it's made we get a hint that in this vision dalinar takes the place of one of the radiants who comes to help the villagers fight and he he says something to the other radiant like my uh my shard plate won't work and he's like you're not wearing your shard plate dumbass you know he's like you dismissed it so we find out that a it can be dismissed like a shard blade and that B, when he he says, oh, no, I, I had a problem with it earlier, the other Radiant says, well, talk to your Spren about that. So the Spren have something to do with the Shard Plate as well. Mm-hmm. And we also find out that the Stormfather tells him that you, you have to find more words before you get the Shard Plate. And you're either going to find them or you won't. Like, nobody can help you with that. So that's all new information. I ain't your Shard, bitch. <laughs> right? <laughs> So I love Queen Fen being a badass here, right? Yeah. And Dalinar is like, wow, you know, I I got dropped into this vision, you know, a bunch of times. And I just, you know, tried to save the one chick. Yeah. (laughs) And she like rallied the entire village to defend itself. Absolutely. Yeah. He says to her, or I'm sorry, the Radiant, sorry, going back a little bit. Uh, the Radiant says to Dalinar, just be ready to back me up against the Midnight Essence mm-hmm. and use regrowth on any of the wounded. So the thing that uh, Dalinar fights in the visions aren't actually from Midnight Mother, but they're Midnight Essence, mm-hmm. um, who was sisters with Midnight Sparkle, who just got her <laughs> cutie mark. I love this line that Dalinar says to Fen when she's, she's going back and forth. She's like, it comes out that she suspects she obviously can tell there's something going on. There's something to what he's saying, but she suspects that he's working with the enemy mm-hmm. and that's where his powers are coming from. Which and is she's, a good presumption. It's a good presumption. She's obviously a smart cookie. And she's like, so, so basically what you're telling me is I, I have to let the, the Blackthorn into my country um, or the world is going to end. She's do you, like, do you know how many freshmen have fallen for that line? <laughs> It'll only take a minute. <laughs> um, Dalinar is like, basically, he doesn't try and convince her that he's changed, you know, and he says, yeah, I'm I'm not a good guy. He says, but maybe all the good men are dead and all you have is me, which is also a line that so many freshmen have fallen for. <laughs> I get it. He's the captain of the basketball team, but I am here. <laughs> Is that seven words? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Sure. (laughs) We learn another tidbit about the Stormfather as well. He talks about how Dalinar is trying to convince him to do something that he's he's like, I I don't usually do that. And and he's like, what basically like, what are you a pussy? You know, and (laughs) the Stormfather is like, look, I'm not a man. 
he's like, it's not like I have a lot of choices. He says, I, I do what's in my nature. That's it. To defy that is pain. So that's an interesting tidbit about even these like Uber spren that are out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not in- conscious. They're not beings like men and Parshendi seem to be. Well, yeah, they're not entirely independent, I guess. Not, right. It's not really the word I'm looking for. No, I, I think that's um, a good word for Self-actualized? It. Like yeah. they, they still have to, they're still beholden to their nature, more like animals than, yeah. than humans. Chapter 35 is called First Into the Sky. Kaladin's return to Urethiru means that the bridgemen regain their Windrunner powers. He begins preparing to train them as Radiance. So there's a lot of talk about requisitions and... Who's allowed to marry who? How the army works, and that's pretty much this chapter. Yeah, it's interesting. So the first time I read through, I skipped this chapter. Oh. Not consciously. Right. And it wasn't until I was taking notes, I'm like, all right, chapter 35. And I'm like, like there was no chapters from Sigzel's perspective. Uh-huh. What the hell is this? And then I realized that I had forgotten to read it. So I had to go, you know, kind of go back and 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 read it here recently. But um, yeah, not not a ton happens. It's sort of a it's sort of a who's more woke contest mm-hmm. between Sigzel and Kaladin. Right, pretty much. That's pretty much what the chapter is. So, Kaladin's like, why are, like, dudes can marry dudes. Why are you being such a heart, such a dick? And then he's like, hey, babe, you want to join the light? Right. <laughs> you want to join Bridge Four? We need somebody to keep notes. <laughs> right. Seriously, have you ever been the, the only girl in a group project scenario? No, I will be that. the one that takes notes. Just saying. The first quote that I wrote down was this about the Sigzel is talking about the Azish people. And he says, queuing in an orderly way wasn't only expected in Azir. It was a mark of national pride. And I was like, (laughs) my heart. If you, if you lived in a kingdom in (gasps) Roshar. Oh gosh. Azir all the way. Absolutely. No question where you would be. It just needs to be a form for that. Okay. (laughs) Nothing drives me more crazy when people can't just form a line. (laughs) Just form a line. It's not that hard. What's the problem, man? I also, I love Lopin walking on the ceiling because he's practicing. Yeah. <laughs> cracking jokes. Yeah, Lopin, he's got he's got two arms and three-arm confidence. He's, <laughs> right. He's got the confidence of a man with three <laughs> legs. Uh, we don't know where Teft is. Apparently, he's been disappearing. Something's going on with him that's being kind of teased out. Sigzel says, um, hopefully Teft is off, you know, inspecting another another bridge crew and, and not the other thing. Yeah, I highlighted that, the other thing, but no explanation of what the other thing is. And the other, th- now I'm using that phrase, the other thing that we have talked about with Teft, Teft that's never really fully been expanded upon is that, you know, he sort of grew up uh, in Scientology uh, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. <laughs> Yeah. But we never really fully figured out what that was all about. Mm-hmm. I thought it was funny when Sigzel walks in on Kaladin doing his morning push-ups. Yeah, of course. Of, because of, of course he because did. of course he did. Don't you hate it when you're doing your morning push-ups and someone just walks in and wants to talk about a moral code for your bridge crew? <laughs> and you're like, 998. <laughs> 999. <laughs> I saw someone on one of one of the Facebook pages 
that had to do with Stormlight was just talking about how Stormlight kind of reads like like a D&D game. Oh, right? yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, my character's a paladin. What's his name? Kaladin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also like, uh, while the other guys are going to town, I'll just be in my room doing push-ups. <laughs> I'll just like I've oh man, there's all these fuse going around. I'm gonna try and escape. All right, roll for initiative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <sighs> oh no, you, you start to escape, but then you just hover in the air like a dumbass. Like a dumbass. You're just <laughs> apparently you're transfixed by the scene. I don't know what to tell you. Look, you don't get to be a flying paladin and have common sense. That's just a <laughs> It's too overpowered, man. <laughs> it's too OP, as the kids say. Well, that's it. That's all I have for the chapters. Do you have anything else for that one? Uh, no, it ends with a sack of gems. Yeah, sack of gems. Giant sack of gems. We don't know. Kaladin's up to something. Train. He's going to train the uh, the other ones how to use Stormlight. So. Yeah, this section kind of ends a little bit on a whimper, but it was a good section overall. Yeah. Like and again, we're trying to kind of go at a at yeah. a faster pace. And so there things aren't always going to wrap up as neatly as as far as the episodes are concerned, but I promise you things are building in this book. It's going to get epic. Shit will get epic. It's it's going to Have you seen the plumbing in your Thero? It's going to have to get epic. Justify all those tubes. Would you like to talk about some listener questions? I would. Listener interactions? Let's go through them. All right. First, I'm going to talk about some interactions we had on Twitter. All right. Because we don't we don't always get uh, the same level of interaction on Twitter as we do in uh, on Facebook. But uh, Pat Sponigal introduced us to a few people uh, saying... Hey, check out Caster Quest and the D and D podcast if you like King Killer. Uh, and so we got to interact with a few people there. Nice, uh, Malesh uh, Trivedi and uh, Because Val. So thank you for that, Pat. So I got to talking about uh, Conan the uh, Sumerian, who was on Twitter talking about Robert Jordan's book, the uh, the one off book that he did, Warrior of the Altai. Yes. Have you read that? No. No? Okay. So somebody needs to tell us if that book is any good. Yes, please. Uh, I followed uh, Center on on Twitter, and they said, the D&D podcast are following me. I feel as nervous as I usually do in a job interview. No need for all of that. I mean, only half of us are wearing pants right now. That's true. Yeah, how, I mean, how, you know, you can't take Don't it seriously. Don't be intimidated. <laughs> right? And then we had some, I had some conversation with uh, Nastasha, who we went back and forth on the classic question we always talk about in King Killer, which is, was there something timey-wimey going on with Chronicler that he ended up being at the university before Quoth, and yet he's older than Quoth? And she speculates that, um, that he went back to the university to do, to do research on quote, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, I still think that the university is more like grad school. So most of the students are considerably older than quote. 
Yeah. And that, yeah. that quote is just sort of a, like, imagine a prodigy going, you know, starting grad school. Um, there would be a huge age difference. Yeah, of course. So Chronicler could have gone back to school after writing a book, after having a career, like many people do, yeah, um, have already written The Mating Habits of the Common Dragus and and then gone back to school after Quoth already left. So over on Facebook, Theogram Brown says, I feel like Venley as a POV character didn't match how she seemed previously. I felt a bit, a bit unsure about this. I thought she was pretty evil and calculating previously. I think I made peace with this, but what do you think? Is it, it just how she always was? Or have the events changed her and brought some compassion into her world? So we talked about this, but I would say it's the latter. I think she was who you saw in those previous chapters, and now she's starting to realize the magnitude mm -hmm. of what has happened to her. Her sister's dead. Her mother's likely dead. Right. Uh, she's being bossed around by this spren who's telling her what to do, and it's not playing out at all the way she imagined it would. Right. And I think we're going to see an interesting arc with Venley. I think they've already we've already been kind of been set up to try and have a little bit of empathy for her as someone who definitely set some pretty terrible actions and emotion, but now is going to be having to grow as a person to to deal with the feelings that she has. Absolutely. And hopefully, I mean, we see the listeners being sucked back into this relationship with their gods that they sacrificed everything to get away from. And all of a sudden this can of worms is open again and they're about to be enslaved by them. And, and, and we know that at one point they chose slavery um, by the, the Alethi over slavery to their gods. Mm -hmm. So we we're hope we have hope that there's going to be a character who is going to save them from that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, Venley might, be the one who's able to do it now that Eshonai is gone. Plus that kills all my Eshonai predictions. Not cool, man. Mm-hmm. Madsen Sparler says, here's all I want to know. Bright Lord Sterling or Bright Lord Vadim? Are you ready? I mean... On, on three, okay? You ready? One, two, three, Vadim. Vadim. Right! Bam. That's right. Always Get pick the here, Darcy. Sterling. Always pick the Darcy. Don't pick Wickham. What's wrong with you? It's ridiculous. <laughs> was I, oh, Thea Graham Brown says, was I alone in initially linking the Midnight Mother to the sleepless that Lyft met in Edge Dancer? No, I think I, I think I had even, I think I had made that same one, maybe back in episode 104, 105. Yes. I think I had thought that that might be the same type of thing going on there. Yes. Because it seemed to be everywhere at once, and so that's why I sort of thought that was the case. I did not think there was this... Um, uh, it, it, you know what it reminds me a lot of, actually, is the last... Without spoiling anything, the last episode, last season of Stranger Things. Mm, okay. Theo also says, for me, this section was, was good and interesting to read. Uh, but there were so many little details I, f I found that were forcing me to become sort of unfocused on the story itself. The unmade, the fact that some made, unmade have actual names, everyone knows, Venley getting cold feet, the spread of redemption. 
seems different than the yellow spren uh, with Kaladin's lot. The details about Bridge 4 retaining the tattoos, but not the scar, but Kaladin retaining the scar, but not the tattoos. The problems with the Stormlight Archive is it's a good story combined with a random info dump, and I'm feeling like no one told me I should have been mapping this maze from page one. I should have kept my own spreadsheet so each piece of anything I found could make sense, but it's too late now. So I've said this a lot of times, but my experience with reading this series has been I, I tried to read Way of Kings several times. I finally got through it. The end, um, you know, the the scene where Dalinar it plunges his shard blade into the glyph and says, for the Bridgman, like that was enough. I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. But then every time a new book has come out and I've had to reread it, it has increased my enjoyment that much more because I catch those little things and the I catch the complexity of the wor- of the world building that's going on and I appreciate it more and more. But you also and, said, because I remember when you were reading this for the first time, that you struggled to make it through the first time. Absolutely. Um, I, I will say, now having read it multiple times through, this is definitely a story that improves on a reread because there is so much going on that seems like it has nothing to do with anything. But the more you read it, the more things fall into place and, and you kind of get everything. Um, I, I can see like when all of these books are out, if we are still on this planet... Um, when all of these books are out, reading them, it's going to just be mind blowing to kind of sit and go through. And and I think, you know, resources like the 17th Shard or or just kind of a podcast like a, a ours. Podca- I don't want to say that, but a podcast on, like now, ours help, would help with that. But I would definitely agree that this cause can be a very tough read the first time through. Well, I also sort of like I feel this way also a lot about Wheel of Time in that it's just so big and there's so many sort of details and little things that you can't possibly retain it all. But I also sort of feel like that the stuff that Brandon Sanderson puts out comes back around most of the time. Where yeah. I, I don't know, and I've, you know, I have not finished uh, Wheel of Time, but I don't know that I can say that about all the square hats uh, and and braid tugging that happens in Wheel of Time. There's just a lot of sort of details about weird little cultures and weird little cities that I don't think actually comes back at any point. There's some there's some threads that that dangle. I, I will say that, and again, Brandon Sanderson is the one who wrapped up Wheel of Time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a very very satisfying ending for me as someone who read that series over decades. You know, it was a very satisfying. Um, series. I I do think that in this, because Brandon Sanderson went into this with it all planned out and the idea of the Cosmere and and an end goal in sight, it, the the meticulous way that things do get tied up and brought back up is just unparalleled. I think it's fantastic. And I, I do think that that it does take several several times reading through to be able to really appreciate that. Um, and, and I do think the pace of it, we talk about this all the time and, and God bless you all who are reading along with us. I don't but know how you do it. It does. Um, I think it does improve your enjoyment. If you do just kind of, cause you barrel through and at least if you're a reader like me and, and I I'm okay, I can just kind of blow past little details. I don't understand and get to the plot, get to the dialogue, enjoy the 
the story for what it is on that level. And then the second time I read it, then I go through and every time I catch something like, like this time, and I forgot to bring it up, but there's a mention in chapter 35 about how the Lopin's fingernails, and we've heard about her dad's oh, fingernails yeah. being mm-hmm. dark. Sigzel talks about their fingernails being reminiscent of carapace. And I'm like, that is going to be interesting later. There's something is going to happen mm-hmm. where we're the about the Herdazians being a little bit different or there's their interaction with the environment is going to be a little bit different. There's going to be some Herdazian 23 and me going on. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. You gotta find out their uncle was a serial killer. <laughs> the Lopin is 100% that bitch. I will tell you. <laughs> um, Brian so McClure- yeah, go ahead. Brian McClure says, is there a connection between the nine unmade and the nine heralds? that abandoned the 10th Herald? Uh, That is a very good point. What do you think? I mean, initially my thought is sort of yes, uh, because those those numbers aren't there for nothing, except that we have have a Herald that uh, we know about who's in human form. And... We've seen other heralds, right? And I mean, it also seems like the unmade were already there before the recreants. Yeah, and we've um, we have the herald, uh, the one in Edge Dancer as well. So it seems like we have accounted for some of them. Well, and I, and I think that the nine unmade. So Dalinar talks in a vision about seeing Odium and having nine shadows. Yeah. So it, we know that ten is the number of wholeness on Roshar. So. Nine shadows plus odium would make one kind of whole. So, you know, maybe the unmade are sort of like splinters off of odium or aspects of aspects his, of yeah. him of his e- of his evilness. Evilness. I mean, we know yeah. odium's the bad guy. There's no two sides to that conflict. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah. He also asked, "What separates your regular awakened parchment from the red-eyed parchment that appear to surge bind?" Uh, so that's interesting because they're called the fused. Mm-hmm. So I'm presuming that they have fused with some particular type of spren or mm-hmm. gemstone mm-hmm. Uh, that, that brings them more in line with the uh, spren of redemption. Brian McClure also says, is Ulim re- really a spren of redemption? If so, what are the redemption spren doing on the side of Odium? And I think we kind of addressed that mm-hmm. uh, when we said we think it, the word redemption is oh, from yeah. the perspective. Yeah. That's why I didn't get to those questions. Uh, Brian also asks, uh, do you expect there to be tension moving forward between Shalon and Yasna? I'm going to say yes, as long as Shalon is willing to continue to lie to Yasna. Oh, and he also asks, what's up with the story that Sigzel tries to tell Kaladin? We didn't really get to that. No, we didn't. And it was kind of a funny part where Sigzel is is trying to express to Kaladin that he feels like um, someone needs to step up and help Bridge for find their moral center, find their kind of code of ethics. And and he's having trouble articulating that. So he tries to do what his master wit would always do and tell a story, but he does a just a terrible job of it. Well, he, he loses the concept that, you know, it's supposed to be sort of an allegory for like what's going on or a parable that's relevant to the conversation. And he just tells a story that's completely unrelated, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't know, it just, it always seemed to work for Hoyd, but it doesn't. But But he says, you know, the story is kind of about 
responsibility and taking responsibility. Um, and that, you know, he and Kaladin, you know, he's like, someone needs to take responsibility for this and talk to the men about mm. their actions and, and give them some guidance. And Kaladin's like, well, if you really don't want him sleeping with hookers, I guess <laughs> you can explain your point of view to them, but you can't force them. We need a chaplain. So Brian also says the Midnight Mother tries to bond herself to Shallan. She fails to do so, but do you think it's possible that we'll see a character succeed in bonding with either one of the unmade or perhaps one of the redemption spren in the future? And if so, would they gain the same surges as Knights Radiant or would they get entirely different ones? So actually, that's something I kind of um, I kind of think probably will happen. You know, they're supposed to be Odium's champion. Would it be shocking at all if... Odium's champion gets bonded to one of the unmade or multiple of the unmade. I mean, they, there's no reason for us also to think that the rules would be the same for them. Mm -hmm. So in terms of like surges and you get two, like, I don't, I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, Brandon Sanderson seems to like his orderliness. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but I would think there's no reason to think it would, that it would be the same way. Mm -hmm. Susan King says, do you think Adolin will still be head over heels in love with Shallan when all of her personas melt together? Or do you think she's going to cave under the pressure when it happens? I don't know that I feel like her personalities are going to meld together. I guess we'll have to find out. I mean, we'll see. I think Adolin is definitely head over heels for Shallan. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't see that changing anytime soon. If... If that relationship ends, I think it's going to be because of Shallan, not because mm -hmm. of Adolin. Mm -hmm. Eric Algar says, or maybe Shallan gets some bad stormlight and her personality split into completely separate beings and then they have to duke it out all Superman 3 style. That's amazing. I mean, that's how we're going to end the <laughs> podcast right we there. We're going to pretend like that happened. That's going to happen. My money's on Brightness Radiant. <laughs> It's also interesting to me that Brightness Radiant, along those lines, is the personality that most closely aligns to Yasna. Mm, like yeah, she's, you're right. She's trying to kind of mimic Yasna in that in that character. Right. Well, she was trying to, to make someone who could be the Radiant that everybody seemed to want her to be. Yeah. But a lot of that, you know, a lot of Yasna gets wrapped up in that because I think that's her perspective of what a, quote, radiant should be. Uh, right down to the bigger boobs. I'm exactly. pretty sure she made bigger <laughs> boobs on Brightness Radiant. Strange, I didn't notice that. It's definitely mentions having bigger boobs as Brightness Radiant. Interesting. I did not, <laughs> I did not connect to that. I'm very ashamed of myself. <laughs> All right, are you ready for predictions? Yes. All right. I only have two predictions. Okay. Although I, I made a third, so I guess I'll go ahead and, and make a third here. Um, that the unmade, the third being the unmade, uh, will bond to Odium's champion. Okay. My other two predictions, the first is that I think Venley is going to bond with that weird, bright, uh, Saturn-looking spren. Mm-hmm. Just like what was supposed to happen with Esh and I is going to happen with Venley instead. Okay. Uh, and uh, the smoke monsters are made of people. Made of people. They're made of people. They're made of people. <laughs> uh, 
I think the smoke from when people are killed by shard blades, you know, doesn't just go up into the air and put a hole in the ozone layer. I, I, you know, it's not like Aquanet. I think somehow all that sort of negative energy uh, gets sucked up and gets pushed back into the smoke monsters. Those are some tinfoil ass theories, and I am here for it. That's what I mean. That's what I'm here for, man. <laughs> That's what I do. Where can they find us? They can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. D is in David, N is in Nancy, D is in David Podcast. They can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess Podcast or on our Facebook group page at facebook.com slash group slash the DND group. You can find us on Goodreads, Reddit, Instagram, all of those places by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. If you really like what you heard here, tell somebody about it. Or better yet, buy a t-shirt. Go to tpublic.com, search for the Duke and Duchess podcast, get yourself a groovy baby tee, and uh, you know wear it to a party on Saturday night. And when people are like, what is that? You're like, you're like, I listen to two podcasts, This American Life and The Duke and Duchess. <laughs> That's it. All right, good night, everybody. Good night. like where you're going but it's actually kind of chilly so i'm gonna what i'm just gonna pretend to take my pants off how are you cold it's cold look at my slippers it's fuzzy slipper weather i'm burning up down here there is one drawback to the new studio is it does not have any climate control (laughs) it's true by design so there's no noisy air conditioners or heaters to kick on or off. So you are stuck with what you got. Much like the podcasters of old. (laughs) Back in the halcyon days of 2007. They didn't have climate control back then. (laughs)